from the Finley Toyota Studio, it's Cofield and Company. You throw a gif on there? Oh, if I throw a gif? Like, that means something. I love bears doing human things. Right. I don't like bears being bears. Right. We're not going to do handwritten notes. God, no. Jesus. It's time for Cofield and Company with Steve Cofield on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, here we go on this Tuesday. It is Cofield and Company. You heard it. Adam Hill is in as the company trending at 2 o'clock. Weird timing, right? With the way uh, Golden Knights fans are feeling. But uh, good news in Adam Hill. The Vesna up for grabs, been whittled down a bit. Marc-Andre Fleury in the mix. Yeah, and, you know, he's a guy who has been perhaps the goaltender of the generation uh, in the NHL. He's been incredible for so long. Stanley Cup runs, everything in Pittsburgh, everything he did with the Golden Knights, but has never been nominated for the Vesna as the best goaltender in the league uh, yet uh, as a finalist. And now it finally happens, and... You know, more than deserving. Marc-Andre Fleury had an unbelievable year at a time when a lot of people thought uh, his career was absolutely on the downswing. Uh, you know, there was a lot of rumors that he could be traded and uh, was was far past his prime, was overpaid. All those things, I think, still could be discussed. But no question that he has had an unbelievable season and a very, very deserving finalist for the Vesna. He's up against uh, Philip Grubauer and Andre Vasilevsky. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough. Uh, you know, it's certainly no slam dunk. I, I think Vasilevsky had an unbelievable season. Grubauer uh, has been very consistent uh, for much of the year, has been certainly one of the best goaltenders. And we saw uh, once again, you know, a, a, a good performance in game one, although he wasn't very tested uh, against the Golden Knights. But Colorado and Vegas kind of head to head again, although uh, Tampa Bay will have something to say about this. And I think Vasilevsky uh, certainly uh, could, could be the guy that gets the award. NBA tonight, three games on tap. Start off the day with Boston in uh, Brooklyn, 3-1 series there. Nets lead it. That's a 4-30 start. 6 o'clock, Portland-Denver, tied series at 2. And looky here, the topsy-turvy Lakers-Sun series. Thought by many, including the uh, books and the betters, to be done. Lakers went in as a uh, minus 900 series favorite, up 2-1. They come out of that game, now 2-2, and no Anthony Davis. Well unlikely to play tonight because of a strained groin. Uh-oh. Yeah, that does... Whenever you see, you know, proclamations of series being over or, you know, not being competitive or, well, that'll do it here, those are always subject to, well, what if somebody gets hurt? What if one of the most important players in the series gets hurt? And that has absolutely happened here. And the Lakers are a completely different team Without Anthony Davis, saw that in the second half of game four. Um, I, I think if Anthony Davis plays throughout, the Lakers win and the series is pretty much over. Now, all of a sudden, you're sitting at a spot where the Suns door is wide open and you look across and see there's no Anthony Davis and the Lakers are so built around their stars. When you lose one of them, you're a different team. And I think the Suns are probably sensing some blood in the water. If, if AD indeed doesn't play, as it looks like he won't, what a golden opportunity for the Suns to actually take advantage of this great season they've had. And that might not be the biggest news coming out of the weekend with the NBA because there are more incidents with fans and players. Uh, now we have an incident with Kyrie Irving in Boston where someone threw a water bottle at him, the person was arrested, and then some jackass ran on the floor in Washington. 
it's over and over. I think it's six now, six incidents. If you want to, you know, just categorize them on different levels of severity, just as one, you know, one group overall, six different incidents with fans in the, in the NBA postseason, And it's getting, you know, it's, it's been egregious. It's getting frightening. It's getting, I mean, I don't know, whatever term you want to use, fans are emboldened. And I think one of the really interesting things, I don't know if it's copycat, if that's the right term, but, you know, while most of us are seeing these incidents and saying, this is ridiculous, something more needs to be done, you know, they need to do something extreme to really stop this. And, you know, who, but, but at the same time, you're thinking, well, who are the idiots that are going to do it now that we've all, you know, shamed these other people for doing it? <laughs> and then every game, you're pretty much seeing one. I was going to say, we said that before the weekend. That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. And we had two more. It, it's insane. You keep thinking like, yeah. well, every, like it's one of those things you watch and say, well, everyone is in agreement. This person is an idiot. We're all in agreement. This is stupid. This person should be shamed and punished. And then all of a sudden you see somebody else do it. So not everybody must be in agreement that these people are out of control and wrong and stupid and need to be shamed. All right. We get to the Golden Knights. We held off as long as possible. My God, what was that? Poor Robin Leonard. Uh, just did not look like the Knights were ready to go for game one. And uh, the weird thing is DeBoer was talking like, hey, they're driven. They feel like they're disrespected going into the series, and this is what they turn out, 7-1. Yeah, I think th- that comment didn't age well uh, from before the game on Sunday uh, where during the availability, um, Pete DeBoer was asked about, you know, just how good Colorado is going into the series and, you know, going up against the president's trophy winning team, the team that is favored you being an underdog. And this is on the heels of, of course, you know, we had a column in the paper that it's only the second time the Knights have been an underdog in the series. Um, A lot of people talking about Colorado being the best team that the golden Knights have ever played in the playoffs, a favorite to win the Stanley cup final. And I think Pete DeBoer has probably seen all that, read all it, heard all of it. And when he was asked on Sunday, basically said, I don't even know why we made the trip. Like, everybody's already assuming that we've lost. What are we even doing here? And those comments look good when you actually come out and play well and are competitive. But when you get blown off the ice like the Golden Knights did, I think you look back at those comments and say, you know, were were people wrong that are saying that you're a worthy underdog and saying that you should be an underdog and that Colorado is the best team? Like You did look like you shouldn't have made the trip. That's how you played. In that game, those things look very, very weird in retrospect. Usually, you know, you say those comments, you go out, and it's a really close game, and everybody forgets about it. But that did look like a team that probably shouldn't have made the trip. One, I'm not sure why he's thinking about that before the series. Who cares? Two, that wasn't the vibe I got. So where is he getting that from? I don't know. If that I, was I, a, I, if that was a true vibe, then the 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 series opening at whatever it was 170 would have skyrocketed to 350. Uh, before the series, I like. Did he he read a couple of people or heard a couple of people saying the Knights were screwed in this series? I, I it's just it seems so off for him because I haven't. Have you heard him mention you know media and predictions as any kind of motivator in the past? I'm not even sure he pays attention. Yeah, well, I mean, but he's never had to deal with being an underdog as, as you know with the Golden Knights in the series. And which, makes last it, year, which makes it even worse. They've had their ass kissed the whole season. All right, last year. This is this is essentially a lot of people think it's two of the three best teams. There's got to be a dog. Sure, and last year they were in a bubble, and 
didn't really have to deal with a whole lot. They they were kind of isolated from everything. And now this year, uh, they come in, they they win the first series, and now all of a sudden, you know, they're being asked about being an underdog. I I I think like I think he was trying to play to this, hey, we've never been an underdog, so let's really embrace it and let's let's oh, wow. be that let's be that team that you know nobody believes in. And you heard, you know, out you know nobody has really played the nobody has ever believed in this team card, but you're starting to feel like they're getting closer. Uh, you were starting to feel that a little bit before game one. And, you know, I don't know if it, it really bothered them and it got to them and they really were affected. I think it was more the the seven-game series not being able to close out and then having to go through the travel and the quick turnaround of less than 48 hours between game seven and game one. And they got off the plane and they were they were awful. I mean, it's not like they didn't look like they, they belonged in the series. They looked like they didn't belong in this league. Like, they were that bad. Uh, they were doing, I mean, falling down all over the place and just, you know, skating in the wrong direction and getting getting turned around and tripping over your own skates. And, like, this team looked like they didn't belong in the league. Now, I expect a completely different team uh, tomorrow night. But they they were, I mean, they should be embarrassed by how they played. I'm sure they were embarrassed by how they played. It was horrific. But it does look a lot worse uh, in in retrospect, when you are kind of playing up this underdog angle, and then you come out and play like a team that doesn't belong in that game. A lot and more on the Golden Knights throughout. A lot more on the Golden Knights throughout the show. Ryan Reeves and his suspension. We'll get into that. What exactly happened to Robin Leonard in this tilt? But coming up, we got to get to uh, June first. Is here. We're expecting uh, some big moves, some big trades. Uh, we'll see what the latest is on Julio Jones and if the Raiders are involved. Now back to Cofield and Company. Because it's not a real deadline. Like, it's like a cap deadline, but Julio's not showing up in Atlanta anyway, so it's not like they need to do it. Like, the only real deadline to me is training camp. So, like, a deal could get done this week, sure. Falcons didn't trade him before the draft, so if they're going to be, you know, holding out for a better pick, if they're going to be that patient, like, they may not trade him this week either. But this is sort of the first opportunity we have to see, like, does some team go, we're going to upper off for a little bit, we're going to do the deal, we're going to make sure we get him, and we're just going to move on there. It's like the first chance we get to see that. Ian Rappaport on the uh, Pat McAfee show. Adam, what do you think is happening right now with Julio Jones? Is someone going to jump the line and get in front of everyone else and offer a first? Or are the teams who are looking at Julio Jones going to kind of wait this thing out and wait for the Falcons to man of the first to come down? I mean, I can't imagine a world in which a team in this season, uh, where the salary cap is and, and what everybody's dealing with, offers a first-round pick for Julio Jones. I, I can't imagine that scenario. But I've seen teams do silly things before. Yeah, it's, a, so, it's a it's a first-round pick, and then you get to give Julio Jones a raise. Because you're not getting Julio Jones just for you know a less-than-market deal. You have to give up a first, and then in all likelihood, you're going to have to give him some kind of signing bonus and rework the deal. Rich Eisen was talking about this on his show, and he was kind of talking it through. Uh, because he was uh, talking about the Raiders. Why wouldn't the Raiders get involved on Julio Jones? And, of course, you can hear Rich every day on our sister station, Ra uh, Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM. Fire this. No one's mentioning the Raiders. Raiders 6-1 to one to land Julio. I guess people are mentioning the Raiders. I just haven't heard I haven't heard that talk. 6-1? 6-1. Uh, Patriots still your front runner at 5-2. to two. 49ers 3-1. Uh, to one. Titans 4-1. to one. Raiders 6-1. to one. Would that put the now Raiders actually, in? Oops, sorry. 
the running for a good solid second place in the AFC West? Okay, cliffhanger. Uh, if they get him, could they finish second in the AFC West? I cut it off there because the odds actually were missing the Rams, Adam, who made a meteoric rise at the end of last week, going all the way up to 5-1, to one, but then it came out that the Rams aren't interested in Julio Jones, so uh, back down they go. Originally, they were 66-1 to one to get Julio Jones. Here's a little more eyes in on Julio Jones, and uh, Rich loves the Raiders. What is a second-round pick? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel you. If this guy could put you over the top, what is it? What? What? what, what that's it. Whatever. Whatever. I'll sit there on a Friday night, what, what, you know, watching everybody else pick. When I got Julio in my back pocket, Are you kidding me? Okay. <laughs> so the basic question: What is a second round pick worth, Adam? Uh, let's get off the first. Now Eisen was talking about the second, and by the way, you can hear Rich over on our sister station, R and R nine twenty AM. What is a second round worth? Answer him. It's worth plenty, uh, but I think he's right to an extent. Here, here's the problem that Rich Eisen is falling into because I know one of the things that he likes to do is the same thing that a lot of fans like to do. And I think most of the people that you're hearing obsess and drool and you know just lust after Julio Jones have one thing in common. They're fantasy football players. And and so am I, and I, you know I I am obsessed with fantasy football. I love it, but like players that are first round picks in fantasy football are not necessarily, you know, the same first round picks that you'd get in the NFL. No. I mean, they're they're first round pick guys, but it's not people you'd give up a first round pick for. Would I do? Would I give up a second round pick in fantasy for Julio Jones? Yeah, I would. Yeah, but but you have to consider that he's you know into his thirties now. He has he, the games played on his stats, like aren't necessarily indicative of of his health because he has usually shown up and played, but he misses halves here and there. He misses quarters here and there. He's questionable every single week. We know that, um, and I'm not doing this to diminish Julio Jones. I think he's an unbelievable player. I'm pro Julio Jones. I, I'm I'm definitely an advocate for his talent, but like you do have to consider what he makes. And how close to the end of his career he might be when you would make a deal like this and the amount of money. I mean, the, the, the cap hit that you take and what the restructuring would be just seem insane to me. And here's the thing. He said, does, does this make you know, the Raiders a clear-cut second place in the division or whatever he – however he phrased that? Like, who's he covering? Like, is he getting to the quarterback or is he covering a receiver? What position that he plays wide receiver – Okay, no. Then he's not changing the dynamic of the team. Uh, th- this team is not a wide receiver away. It's several key defensive players away. And I just I don't get why Julio Jones would make the Raiders significantly better. I get why they would want him. I get why there's speculation because you know this is a this is the kind of player the Raiders have always you know tried to get. John Gruden is you know very much into offensive weapons. Uh, he went and got Antonio Brown before. Uh, this would kind of make up for losing Antonio Brown. Now you get Julio Jones, one of the best receivers in the league. All great. So I get why the Raiders are connected to him, but I, I don't get why people think he would make the Raiders significantly better. That's not the right fit. More on Julio Jones coming up throughout the show. Up next, though, we'll get reaction from our uh, Raiders Insider, Locked On Raiders podcast, part of uh, Raider Nation Radio 920 family. Q Myers. Finley Toyota. 
They'll do anything to sell you a car. No Toyota problem is too tough, too large, or too small. Keep your Toyota running like a Toyota. You're listening to Cofield and Company on ESPN Las Vegas. Back here on this Tuesday, we check in with our weekly convo, Q Myers, Locked On Raiders podcast, big part of the family over at Raider Nation Radio 920. Speaking of that, Rich Eisen, Q, is saying that the Raiders need to make a run at Julio Jones. Do you agree? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, we, we've talked about it many times on the show before that, you know, you always want to continue to develop your team and always continue to develop your offense. And the Raiders offense isn't complete 100% yet. You know, they could definitely use Julio Jones. He would immediately be the best wide receiver on the team. So, yeah, absolutely. They should do their due diligence. They should even try pretty hard to get after him, you know, try to get him on the squad. But at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of different elements in play that may just be too rich for him that they might, even though they might want to get him, they might not just be able to get it done as quickly as some of these other teams are going to jump on him. What are some of those factors why the Raiders you think are behind other teams in getting it done quickly? Well, the trade for him, you've got to have the salary cap space. You've got to have the $15 million something dollars, and right now they have about four. So they've got to make some moves. Not saying they can't, but they've got to make them quick. You know, you can't just go ahead and, and, and trade for them and not have that salary cap space and then say you'll figure it out later. You've got to get that done quick, fast, in a hurry. And I think that there's some teams out there that may be trying to beat them to the punch and, and go for and do that. And then on top of that, there was the report that came out on Memorial Day that Julio Jones is also looking for, what else? A new contract, which is something he's always looking for, a new contract. Man, I wish I could get a raise like Julio Jones gets a raise. It's like every single year he's like, hey, I need another raise. And I feel the same way that we all need another raise, but it just doesn't work that way. But Julio Jones, boy, he's the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to to salary and and I need another raise and I need a new contract extension because he's asking for one every single year. Do you believe that there are teams out there that will give up a first-round pick for Julio Jones? I don't know, man. That's the that's my big hang-up. I've talked about it on the podcast the last couple shows, and people are saying, oh, well, look what the Raiders have done with their first-round picks. Just go ahead and do it. He's a proven wide receiver. But he's 32, Steve. I just can't. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just me being stupid. I don't know. Or me being naive. I just can't see giving up a first-round draft pick for a 32-year-old wide receiver. Now, Amari Cooper went for a first-round pick, but he wasn't 32, and he was also on a rookie deal. So that was okay. And that was even a shock that the Raiders were able to get a, a, a first for him. I just can't see giving up a first for Julio Jones. I could be, I could be talked out of a second. I would prefer a third and a fifth or a third and a player or a third and a fifth and a player, whatever. I can okay with that. But, man, that first that first round pick, especially saying the draft next year is in Vegas, that's another factor that a lot of people don't want to think about. But that's also a factor. Q Myers is with us, Locked on Raiders podcast. We talk Raiders every Tuesday, bounce around the NFL, and then hit some of the important sports topics. And we'll get to uh, the big news of the weekend, and that was around uh, post-game, post-match press conferences and Naomi Osaka. All right, Aaron Rodgers, the latest out of Green Bay is, hey, the Packers – do not want to trade him. They're not going to trade him. They're going to call his bluff. They don't believe that he will walk this season or sit out this season. I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. I don't believe he's going to sit out either. I heard Rob Domoski, who's been covering the Packers forever. He does a great job. He was talking about it, and he said he thinks Aaron Rodgers is so stubborn that he'll sit out. But, man, these guys are competitors, man. These guys are, are guys that want to win at the ultimate level. And I know he's got enough money to, you know, 
send his kids, kids, kids to school. I get it. But, man, I just can't see Aaron Rodgers sitting out. I think that at some point these two guys, uh, the general manager and Rodgers, will get into the same room and sit it on down and figure some things out. Or, ultimately, if the Packers decide that, hey, this guy is just going to sit it out and he's not going to show up, then maybe we do move him. But, uh, I, I, I honestly, my gut feeling tells me when push comes to shove in the first week of the, the regular season, Aaron Rodgers is under center for Green Bay. That's what I say. Rob Demosky said the exact opposite. So there you go. <laughs> So Rodgers pulling the power play. Uh, Russell yep. Wilson tried to pull the power play. You had Deshaun Watson pulling the power play until he had it thrown back in his face with all these allegations. So who knows where he is right now? Kind of in no man's land. PFT with Florio and Peter King were trying to take a guess at the next quarterback or quarterbacks who may try to flex their muscle. Mm. First choice was Peter King, and he went with Derek Carr. And he basically really? said, yep, he said if uh, if Derek Carr gets to the point where he's got leverage, right, and he's got leverage coming up potentially uh, with the end of his contract, and he just gets sick and tired of always looking over his shoulder, that he could pull a power play. Do you think he'll be in the position to flex his muscles like Wilson tried to, like Rodgers is? No, no, I, I don't. I don't see it at all. That's why it was surprising that Peter King would say that because I, I, I really respect the, the hell out of Peter King. So I, I'm really shocked that Derek Carr would be the, the quarterback that he picked. Um, I just don't think that Derek Carr has got the skins on the wall. And, and really, it's not necessarily 100% his fault. But ultimately, you are what your record says you are. You are what the stats say you are or how much you take your team to the playoffs. Derek Carr has never played in a playoff game. You know, now he would have played in 2016, but he was injured. But these guys, Aaron Rodgers, skins on the wall. Russell Wilson, skins on the wall. These guys, you know, Deshaun Watson, he was headed in that direction. Everyone knows that he's a, a, a top flight quarterback until, well, until his legal issues hit. Now that's all, you know, it's a, taking a back seat. But yeah, I don't think if you're just a middle of the pack quarterback, you have you have the stones to be able to make a, a power play. This isn't the NBA, even though the NFL and a lot of these players would like it to be more NBA like where they have they have a lot more say than uh, than, than what they than what they've used to have in the past. Q Myers is with us. So uh, also up on PFT today was a, a quick story about how the NFL will not tolerate what the NBA has been uh, having on the floor and around the court. I mean, it's a little bit different. The fans are right. a little further away, and that's why the NBA is so unique. That's why basketball is so unique. The fans have instant access. All right, give me your take after yet another incident over the weekend. Now we have someone throwing a water bottle in Boston at Kyrie Irving. What should the league do? I know Kevin Durant came out, and you know he was he was very strong in saying, you know, I, I guess people coming out of the pandemic, just they're, they're just out of control, but it's time to grow up. Yeah, and is that really a valid excuse? You know what I mean? Like, that's to me that when I heard him say that, I know what he means, but I I mean, I just don't get it. I don't understand why all these folks are deciding that they want to do things and they feel like because they bought a ticket or they sit close to the the floor that they have the right to do stupid things like like the young man spitting on Trey Young in Madison Square Garden. Like what in his mind made him think that that was a good decision? I don't care how much liquid courage you have in your body. What made him think that spitting on an NBA player was going to be a good idea and was going to end well for him? Now, Trey Young has a lot more control than, say, a, a Steven Jackson or a Ron Artest or some, you know, someone's got goon tendencies. What if that dude had turned around and just knocked that cat out? Then he would have said, well, we're going to sue him and we're going to sue the league and we're going to do this and that. When really, this dude is spitting on a player? Like, what are you doing here? So I don't understand why all of a sudden the fans get allowed to come back to the arenas and come back and enjoy the sports that they that they love and they've missed for so long dealing with the pandemic. And then all of a sudden they, they don't know how to act. 
and, and, and again, it's just, you know, I don't like to use, well, they've been cooped up for so long as an excuse. That just goes back to home training. If you've got a little bit of home training, you know what's right and wrong. You know that sitting in the stands and deciding to throw a water bottle at the at a player is wrong. I was at the Raider game when they ended the, the run at the Coliseum. It was against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And I was sitting down there in the black hole. I was there not as a media guy. I was there as a fan just to enjoy, soak up that last game. And the Raiders lost it. And at the end, and I get it, man, the fan base, was their feelings were hurt. I get it. But they're breaking off cup holders. They're throwing nachos. They're throwing Everything. I mean, just everything is littered onto the field. And I'm just looking around. I'm here with the wife. I'm like, is this what we're doing right now? Like, we're really doing this. And, and, and you're, you're throwing stuff onto the field because you're pissed off that the team, it, regardless, the team ain't coming back. It's over anyway. So what, what do you you got to have a little bit better home training, man. And so that I, I don't use the I don't like to use the pandemic as an excuse why people don't know how to act. I just think that they're not trained right. And that's not that's a that's a problem. And that's a society problem. Q Myers is with us. Well, you know, the. The worst of the worst are fans who come on and actually get to players and athletes and attack yeah. them. And, you know, we, we saw in right. the past we had a Royals first base coach and, a, you know, a meth-up father and son, allegedly, uh, came out and were trying to uh, beat him up. You know, we saw, hell, fans get near Nolan Ryan. He took care of business himself, but that shouldn't be the case. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy world right now. And the worst, of course, of all was Monica Sellis. She got freaking stabbed on yeah. the tennis court. So let, let's make the segue to tennis here with Naomi Osaka. This one has a lot of layers and well you know she complained about post-match media she said she didn't want to do it she had mental health concerns and eventually over the weekend she just said screw it I'm out of the tournament and this has turned into a wide-ranging discussion it has. It's turned into a huge discussion, especially with it being Mental Health uh, Awareness Month. And, you know, she did make a, a big to do that she didn't want to do it. And she said she was going to take the fines and she hopes that it goes to a really, really good cause. And then she acted on that. And then all of a sudden it became such a topic and everyone was talking about it so much and disappointment because she didn't do the post match media session that she decided just to go ahead and pull out. Well, that's a great player that all of a sudden is out of a major event. And so, of course, tennis is not going to like that. And you want to feel and you want to side on the side of the player and say hey well she's not feeling it if this is hurting her mental capacity you don't want her to do it but then at the same time you want to look at it and say hey this is part of the professional ranks this is kind of what you do this is part of the gig you know yeah i mean everyone loves the gig but they might not love the whole thing about the gig and so that's part of it and so you got to kind of find that middle even you don't want to be rude and you don't want to be insensitive to you know mental health because that's a real deal thing but at the same time you also have to realize that well what, 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 what is the common ground? How can we get onto a middle ground? And clearly they weren't able to. And so now it's a, it's a big, big discussion. It's one of those no-win situations. You know, really, if you don't ask any questions, if you don't talk about it like we're talking about it, then you're ignoring the subject and you're just trying to kind of push it to the back. And that's not all right. You know, it's, it's something that's got to be discussed. You, they just got to figure out. I think this is a perfect time for Naomi and, and the powers to be in the tennis realm to, to get into a room and maybe have a discussion on what they can do and, and, you know, what it is moving forward that she would need or she feels like she should need. I think the good thing about the situation is she's such a big name and she's so good and, and they of course are going to want to highlight her and she they don't want her to miss out on any kind of action because that's just you know losing money out of their pocket uh I, I think that she'll be able to bring as much awareness to the situation as need be and will at least draw their attention now if they're going to move forward on it who knows that's that's going to be up to them i will say this is also part of the the issue of 
you know, having professionals at like 14 years old and 15 years old. I say it all the time. You know, we look at, you know, the, the NBA where they're talking about just go straight out of high school, go into the league. And we've seen some do it. We've seen some fail. I think that, yeah, these guys and these young ladies can go and compete. Their bodies can hang with these these pros and, and these grownups and these adults. But a lot of time their mental capacity cannot hang with them. And, you know, that's that is a major, major factor. There's a lot of times where you may look the part, but upstairs you're not quite the part because you're only 14. And I was going to say, with, with, well, I was going to say how great Tiger was, but look how early he started. He never had an opportunity to even be a, a, a young man. And so you just kind of saw that nothing was it didn't always click the same way that you thought it would click when he was younger. And then moving, you know, as he got older, you kind of saw him want to start doing other other things, you know, and start to be involved in and felt like that that was such a chore. It's almost like it wasn't fun anymore. It was a chore and it was more it was just a job that was forced on him instead of him having to be able to, you know, make that decision on his own. Well, on the issue of athletes talking to the media after games, because this is a slippery slope. The NFL is already starting or had restricted access because of the pandemic. Um, I think it's going to be hard to get the NFL to roll back uh, some of that stuff, some of those restrictions. I think they kind of like what they have right now. I've always thought on the collegiate level that athletes coming out and speaking after losses and wins, but after losses is actually great life training. Um, I don't know that people will buy that, but the majority of college athletes at the highest level are not going to play professional whatever for very long. Uh, Eventually, they're going to have to get a real job. And in, in the real world, like when you have failings at the workplace, you do have to speak to the media. It's not really the media, your bosses. You are going to have to face the music every once in a while. And, you know, dealing with those crisis moments, dealing with disappointment, dealing with losses. Right. You know, to me, honestly, as a media guy who loves, you know, post-game pressers and all that stuff, I'd rather just talk to the coach. I don't really need to talk to the player. I'd rather just hear from the coach. And I think that that's fair because there's questions that are going to be asked. There's going to be game time situations like this happened in the third quarter. Uh, what were you seeing here? I think that that's fair. Uh, players, I don't really need to talk to them post game. I, I really don't. It's not it's not a big thing to me. I don't think that I ever get a whole lot out of it personally. Um, but then again, at the same time, we do love to have the locker room access. We do love to go into the game or into the locker room, especially after a, a win and say, hey, you know, Trayvon Mullen, you had an interception in the third quarter. Uh, you know, how big was that for you and your team? You know, it just it, it's a, it is a slippery slope, especially when you're dealing with wins and losses and you're dealing with some that have not been trained to even talk to the media and don't want anything to do with it. You know, and so it's 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 tough. I can see, especially with the pandemic. And I said this when when it hit and all of a sudden everything started going over by way of Zoom. I thought we'd never get locker room access again. And we might not. You know, we, we, we might not. It's, it's a I feel like it's a different ball game because they found different ways to get it done. So we'll see how it how it shakes out moving forward. But uh, there's not a whole lot of in-person media sessions going on these days. Q, what's the plan on the podcast this week? Uh, Locked on Raiders podcast. Well, of course, there's going to be a lot of Julio Jones conversation. Uh, today, we were talking about Alex Leatherwood and what a what a successful season would look like. You know, is it a pro football focus grade? Is it a number of sacks given up? And ultimately, I said it's the eye test. You know, I think it just comes down to the eye test. Are the Raiders a better team with him at that right tackle position? Can they run the rock successfully? Can they protect Derek Carr successfully? Do they not basically miss a beat that Trent Brown's not there, even though he didn't play very much in 2020? Uh, that That's kind of my, my thoughts on it. Uh, summarize. But uh, yeah, just just a lot of offseason conversation about, you know, the young guys on the team, Julio Jones watching and everything else NFL related. Q, you're the man. We appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. Appreciate you, my man. 
There he is, Q Meyer, sports talk host out of Waco. He does the daily Locked On Raiders podcast and gave us a strong take there on the media dealings and mental health issues with Naomi Osaka. On the way back, the legend, Dave Koken, to talk a little baseball. This has been an amazing season in some ways for some individuals. We'll ask Dave if Fernando Tatis Jr. going 50-50 is a real possibility. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. The pitch, and Mondesi swings, and it's a deep right field. Way back and gone. Long home run to right. Two-run homer. At Alberto Mondesi. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio. Studio. Here, Mondesi Royals, Royals TV there, raking. Uh, Speaking of that, Tatis Jr. raking. Interesting month for the NL West as all the teams on top of the division all kicked ass, and that includes uh, playing each other. So so had they not played each other, the records would have been through the roof. Dave Kokin is with us. We talk baseball on Mondays. What's up, Dave? Good afternoon. Happy Tuesday to you. Yes, happy Tuesday. Normally on Mondays, but Dave, nice enough. With the day off yesterday, he pops on on a Tuesday. All right, Dave, let's talk about Tatis and just how amazing this is because, uh, listen, the guy missed a ton of games, almost a third of the season because of COVID and other issues. He's played 38 games. The guy's got 16 homers and 12 stolen bases. I saw ESPN.com crunching the numbers. They're talking about a 50-50 season for this dude. I don't know about the 50 stolen bases, but uh, and, and 50 home runs might be a reach, but he's amazing. Uh, and he's got a flair for the dramatic as well. Uh it, there are very few guys in baseball that I put on his level when it comes to a big at bat. That's the guy you want up at the plate. Dave Kokins with us. All right, well, let's talk about some of the um, the superstars, the outstanding performances of the first couple of months here. Now that we've got about a third of the season in, how many people, Dave, do you do you think know who is leading Major League Baseball right now in home runs, and that he's a Ranger and that he's not Joey Gallo? Yeah, Adolis Garcia of all people who. Uh, basically is on his third team this year. Um, it's just an amazing story. He's come from out of nowhere. Plays a pretty good outfield, too. And his homers have not been cheap. He's just smashing the ball. Now, you know, we'll see what happens as pitchers get more familiar with him. Maybe they'll find a hole in his swing, but he's having a dream season right now. Not much else going for the right for the Rangers, so they have to be enjoying that. Dave, a lot of fans and, and even media types and, and people that follow sports tend to overreact early in a season when there's a big free agent signing or you know somebody's brought in and, and it just doesn't click right away and there's a slow start. You have to judge it on a full season, not on you know what happens the first couple of weeks. But we're getting pretty deep into the season right now with Francisco Lindor, and it's just not happening. At what point do we start to work? You know, his numbers weren't great last year either. So and I don't know what's with his offense. Defensively, he's still sensational at times. And I don't think there's anything wrong with his attitude. Um, he's staying positive. Maybe he gets hot at some point. But right now, it's just a mess. I, I, there's no way to predict whether he's going to come out of it or not. Well, what, what about the Yankees? Uh, they, they just got swept by the Tigers. Uh, should we worry about them? And on, the, on a side note, I believe the Tigers just had their third winning month in like the last five years. So Tigers actually played okay last month, but they shouldn't be sweeping the Yankees. No, uh, and the Yankees are having problems offensively. Uh, basically, it's Aaron Judge and not a whole lot else. LeMahieu is not having a great season. Uh, some of the other guys you'd expect to be producing are not. Uh, they've lost Hicks, which means Gardner's playing every day, and he doesn't 
doesn't really hit much anymore. Uh, they're not the best team in that division. I, I, I think it's it's pretty clear who is at this point, and that's the team the Yankees are having the most problems with, as Tampa Bay absolutely owns them right now. What what are the Rays doing right now to be so successful? It's kind of a slow start to the season, but they've really turned things around. It's the same thing the Rays always do. They use their entire roster. Uh, it's not a roster that's loaded with superstars. It, it's just a team concept. Astro's a great job moving the right pieces each and every day, it seems. He gets great use out of his entire pitching staff. Uh, look, they're a very analytics-based team, and apparently it works because they won the pennant last year. That's the World Series, and right now, I would say they're the favorite to get back there again. Dave Kokins with us for Talking Baseball here on a Tuesday, normally a Monday spot. Dave moving around this week for us here on Cofield and Company. So we're through about a third of the season, a couple of months in, and I know I was asking you this at the at the, uh, the end of April. I'm asking again at the end of May, which I guess means maybe I should stop asking. The Giants have won four straight. They won five of seven. Uh, Gaussman, who's a little dinged up right now, has been – Freaking amazing. I don't believe he can keep doing this, but if he does, I, I guess the Giants, Dave, have a chance to win 95 games. It doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't, and I don't think they will, but they keep on making me and everybody else look bad because they're, they're just a good baseball team right now, and they're doing it in a lot of the same fashion as Tampa Bay is doing it. Not really a team that's loaded with superstars. I guess Buster Posey might be a Hall of Famer down the road, but that's about it. Uh, the pitching staff, Kevin Gossman, has been unbelievable. But the other pieces are doing well. And I, I think they've got a chip on their shoulder, which it, it's tough to measure that in wins and losses. But they've got an attitude. I mean, everybody says they're no good, and they keep on going out there every night wanting to prove people wrong, and they're doing it. I do feel like, though, the Rays have a bunch of dudes, you know, at least several dudes who were high-level prospects. Like, were guys that people coveted whether they got them through their system or they traded for them. And you look at the Giants, you're like, these were all guys who mostly who seemed like they were petering out as quadruple-A players. Yeah, uh, it's a team full of cast-offs. And sometimes that works. I mean, not for nothing, but four years ago, we saw the Golden Knights do it in the NHL. Um, that was a team of all cast-offs, guys that nobody else wanted. And I guess there's a chemistry that exists on, on uh, rarely – because most of the time, if you have a team like that, they just aren't any good. But once in a while, it, it really clicked. It did the Golden Knights in their first year, and, and ever since, basically. And it, it looked the Giants win the race last year, right until the very end. And maybe they're going to stick around this year. I don't know how, because their roster just isn't that good. But they don't know it. I, uh, I love what's going on in Chicago with the Cubs. Because clearly, you know, they were going to tread water this year. They were going to move on Chris Bryant, and looky here, they uh, they're seven and one to close May. They go nineteen and eight in the month. Uh, their record is pretty damn good, and I don't think they planned at all on being buyers, you know, a couple of months from now. But maybe they are. Maybe they have to go out at least for the short term and get some sort of replacement for you, Darvish. Well, look, if they stay in the race, and it looks like they will, in what is kind of an average division, there's no real good. Cubs will turn into buyers at the deadline. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, they're a big market team, and they're not going to they're not going to sell off. I mean, this isn't the, the Cleveland Indians. Uh, the Cubs, if they're hanging in there, they're going to buy. What about the Royals? Same same question on them. They're hanging around. I don't think anybody really expected this. Do they start looking to add somebody? Well, you know, and, and this is gets interesting because the Royals, if they win tonight, they're over 500. 
which when you consider they had one really bad stretch where they lost like 11 in a row. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think the Royals, and again, the White Sox can keep the beat that division, but there's nobody else that's real good. I think the Royals will, will take the approach, well, maybe we're closer than we expected to be. Let's go out and get a pitcher, because that's really what they need. They need starting pitching. Uh, I don't know if it can hold up with the pitching staff they've got, but if they hang in for another month, then it becomes serious for them. Well, the Cardinals might need a pitcher, too. They saw a uh, an injury to Jack Flaherty as he, as he was playing offense, and uh, it's still interesting to see why uh, we're still doing this when the DH is – you know, been so fan friendly for so long in in baseball. Uh, what is your take on that one? It, it, there'll be no the next collective bargaining agreement. There will be no more. There will be no more pitchers hitting. That's done. It, it was just a, a, a labor thing uh, that they, they couldn't put it in this year. But uh, when the new CBA comes around, it'll be a universal DH. There's, I don't think there's any question about that. Dave Koken, WagerTalk.com. It's WagerTalk.com and. Uh... Dave's having a, a damn good year, so get over there. They do a ton of videos uh, in the morning to get you primed for that night's action. All right, Dave, let's spend the last couple minutes talking about the Knights. What the hell? I mean, what was that? Did we just brush it off? Hey, a loss is a loss. It doesn't matter. Is that debilitating mentally? I mean, who expected 7-1 to and just to get blown off the ice? Well, the good part is if it was 2-1, to one, it would still be the same result. Uh, mentally, they have to bounce back from that. I think it's a determined team. I expect them to play better tomorrow. Flurry will be back in goal. Uh, I'm not pinning it on Leonard, but quite frankly, he led in a terrible goal to start the game, and it went all downhill from there. Um, look, I, again, I don't think it would have made a difference if Flurry was playing, but they're a better team when Flurry's in goal. Uh, I, that, that's my take, and I expect them to play better <laughs> tomorrow. Don't know whether they're good enough to beat this team. Colorado is just unbelievably fast. Their, their team speed is incredible. Uh, I, I don't recall seeing a team with four lines with this much speed. They, they, if they don't win the whole thing, it's really a big upset at this point. Dave Koken, let's close on this. Dave and I do DC and the Sunshine Man, a revisit to our show that we did for about four years around 2008 to 2012 on ESPN Las Vegas. And when uh, when Dave said, uh, you know, they're just a better team with Flurry in net, trust me, Dave said this. Going into the weekend, Dave, your explosion on some of the viewers and listeners because they kept pressing Leonard getting in there and that maybe they should rotate. You freaking flipped the blank out about the goalie situation and rotating goalies in the postseason. And based on the results, I'll say that that validated my opinion. I would not have rested Flurry. I have had. I'm playing Flurry every game until he shows that he can't do it. Uh, he's your best goalie. He's better than Leonard. And you can't afford to just give away a game in a seven-game series. And quite frankly, I thought they gave away the first game. Uh, they played like they they played, they just mailed it in. It was a lousy effort. And, I, I, look, it's just my opinion. But to me, uh, nobody's going to publicly say it on the Golden Knights. But they're not the same team with Leonard as they are with Flurry. And Flurry should have been in goal. And you're basing the dislike of no rotation on, on what? Watching a lot of hockey over the years that this just does not happen in the playoffs? Yeah, I'm basing it on, on uh, more than 50 years of watching hockey. Uh, you go with your number one goalie in the playoffs. It's that yeah. simple. <laughs> Dave will take no S on this. He, he Like I said, he flipped out on Friday night. All right, Dave, enjoy the week. We'll catch up with you uh, late Friday night for another DC in the Sunshine Man. Sounds good, guys. Thanks for having me on.
There you go. Dave Koken. Wagertalk.com. It's wagertalk.com. Yeah, Dave had an epic meltdown. That was one of two uh, during the show. Uh, three o'clock hours on the way. We'll get into that decision to start. Robin Leonard, and then we're going to check in with one of the media members uh, who covers the avalanche. The crew over at Finley Toyota speak Spanish, Thai, and even Persian. In fact, they speak 14 different languages. Come in and talk the universal language of big savings today.